No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. Hello and welcome to Know You Tell It, a hybrid story incubator slash performance series. Each Know You Tell It participant develops their true life tale on the page and then switches with a partner to perform each other's work on stage. Because nothing informs your story like hearing someone else perform your story. Does the internet bring us together or keep us isolated? When you learn about the death of a loved one via Facebook, the answer isn't simple. Todd Faulkner reads, Confirmation or Morning Becomes Electronic, written by Mike Dressel. The first and only time I attempted to drive a stick shift by the wheel of Diane's white geo tracker, I ran over Rob's mother's azaleas. First time I shoplifted, dyed my hair, drove on the highway without an accompanying adult, Rob was there, companion in these small moments, showing me how to be nonchalant while stuffing a box of Clairol under my shirt, fiddling with the car stereo. I savored my proximity to him. He was part of my first true group of friends in high school. In 2008, he was, outside of my family, the first person important to me, the first person I loved to die. I was just in the middle of leaving you a voicemail. Rob is dead. That was the first thing Amanda said to me when I returned her missed call. I got a message from his sister on Facebook. She wrote he'd passed away. There was a significant pause while the news was absorbed, as is often the case when a death notice is delivered. Are you sure it's true? Someone didn't hack into the account? It's not an elaborate prank or something, I said? Came from Vanessa, that's his sister, right? I said she was. For a moment, I entertained the idea that Rob and his sister were in collusion that he'd faked his death, destroyed all traces of his past, and was on his way to some remote South American village. After all, haven't we all entertained that fantasy at one time or another? He might just be desperate enough or ingenious enough to succeed. But no, there were indisputable details. The date and time of the funeral service, the email and physical addresses of his parents where one could send condolences. Did she say how he died, I asked? No. We speculated as to the cause. An ostensibly healthy 29-year-old doesn't suddenly drop dead. Aneurysm. A mugging gone awry. Walking under an AC unit that fell from somebody's window. All seemed equally ludicrous. You think it could have been an overdose, Amanda said. No. He's clean. He was in AA, or he was. That bit of intel I gleaned from his MySpace profile a few years prior. Casual cyber-stalking, one might call it, or though at the time it was no more than passing curiosity. This was back when he was living on the West Coast. In his photo, he looked tan, healthy. I think he'd been running marathons. The possibility of it being self-harm hung in the air, unspoken. While on the phone, I searched the online obituaries of our local paper, the Orlando Sentinel, there was no notice, but it was too soon for it to appear. Were you close to his parents, Amanda asked? Honestly? No. His father was strict, uh, distant, and his mother, well, she was suspicious of me back then. A mother always knows. <laughs> but she was kind. I feel awful for them and for his sister. 
The shock and awkwardness of the situation stifled further conversation. Bring me back if you hear anything new, I said. I suppose I had been in love with Rob. I was more certain of it in high school. When the whole enterprise of love is colored by raging hormones and tempestuous urges, it was not an experienced love, but a taste of what that could be. No, it was not holy innocence, either. It was in its first flaring like lightning on a summer night, bright, jarring, and supernatural seeming. In the span of two years, my junior to senior, he'd gone from being a person, a grade behind me, who I irrationally despised, to my best friend and partner in crime, to my secret crush and then furtive lover, and finally ending up a testy adversary, a, a first nemesis. Rob wasn't as I wanted to believe, sitting alone in my teenage bedroom, scrawling my feelings into my journal, my soulmate. But he was a kindred spirit. We shared between us tokens of teenage intimacy, minting our identities through music and movies and books that we thought spoke uniquely to our developing senses of self. It was a time of experimentation, clothes, drugs, sexuality, with boundaries. We pushed those boundaries together. Later, we came apart. It was only a few months earlier that Eric had sent a suggestion that I befriend Rob on Facebook, as either a courtesy or cruelty, I could never be quite sure. I didn't feel like adding him, but I didn't quite, couldn't quite bring myself to delete the suggestion altogether. So there his profile picture hovered in my request until one night, slightly tipsy, the condition in which all impulsive Facebook moves are made, <laughs> I logged on and sent a request, along with a hastily typed note, and a few days later there was a response. We can now be virtual friends. Friends without benefits. <laughs> the click of a button. We didn't even have to interact. It seems a fine solution. Laptop still open. I sent a message on Facebook to a mutual friend who'd remained close with Rob long after high school for verification. I wasn't sure how to word it if she hadn't heard, so I just mentioned his name and said that his sister had said something terrible had happened. She didn't respond, but later that evening I got a message from another old high school friend, Patricia, confirming the truth and with an added bit of information. Having not heard from him in a few days, his family investigated and found him dead in his apartment. So that struck out a car accident, or a mugging, or whatever outside force might have led to his death. Since he was residing in Atlanta and his sister was in grad school nearby, I wondered if she might have been the one to make the gruesome discovery. Patricia said in her message, she was putting together a memory book for his family, soliciting thoughts or wishes anyone might want to add, pass along, or photos. I had no pictures to offer, and to try to write something for them would have been complicated. Rob and I had barely been passing acquaintances for the past decade. The last time we really spoke was a tense conversation holiday party after too much vodka. 
Still, in the way that some old acquaintance or other might, at some gathering pass along gossip, we were aware of each other. And we glimpsed each other in New York and back home a handful of times. And it wasn't as if I were without my own remembrances. The mundane thrills that constituted our suburban teenage lives. Sleepovers. Or loitering in Denny's or an IHOP. Smoking Marlboro menthols and drinking bottomless cups of coffee. Fumbling seductions. Moody silences. Sitting on the hood of his car, looking at the stars. And the aimless car rides to 7-Eleven for Slurpees. The smell of his cologne that lingered on my jacket that he accidentally left one time at my house. But going forward, these little vignettes would have the patina of loss. Typical, the way we reappraise the past. Pulling the best parts into sharp relief while the indignities and slights recede into the background. Then I observed the initial relay of information playing out via the internet struck me as cold, impersonal. But Amanda made a good point. If the situation were reversed, all our various acquaintances, long lost friends, Contacts, those not immediately impacted would most likely be notified via email or Facebook or a text message or a tweet, God forbid. <laughs> the 21st century version of a phone tree. After all, it's the content, not the delivery system. Is that why we seek out people from the past? As we get older, the people we've known and liked for a time, aggregating them into our collection of Random associates, work colleagues, intriguing personalities, friending or following them on social networking sites. Not so we can keep tabs on the quotidian. Who ate what for lunch and who is in a relationship and who's not anymore. Not just to read the breathless griping about infinitesimal slights, share humorous videos or tag old photos. But maybe so that in a tragedy we can reach out and actually reconnect about something vital. Something that does matter. I mailed a sympathy card to his parents. Patricia later suggested a meet-up in Union Square, but I didn't respond to the overture. I was more intent on putting my own feelings. Yes. Had it been someone else, a lesser figure from my past, these feelings the shock might have dissipated quickly. Yet this was someone who, for better or ill, shaped who I am and how I think about who I am. From the movies I get nostalgic for to the objects of my attraction, Rob was a co-architect to the template of the life I'm living now. There have been more additions and excisions since, but he helped lay the foundation. The chain of Facebook messages scrolled out over the following days. No new information as to the why was disclosed, just the what now. Funeral details, where to make donations and lose flowers. Rob's sister said so many, her account was now blocked. Uh, maybe the administrators assumed she was a spammer. Not that it mattered at this point, the information had been delivered. 
His mother let his profile stay online, along with his MySpace page. There may be no way to quantify an afterlife, but there is a digital one of a sort. These sites after death can act as a virtual grave marker, a place for friends to pay tribute. Not unlike those gaudy memorials that spring up at the site of a roadside fatality, a hodgepodge of glossy framed photos and candles, scrubby stuffed animals, seeing as how there were new comments from people who knew them, expressing their sense of shock, loss, and sorrow. I suppose that's a comfort for those who need a photo profile to jog their memory, or a place in which to grieve. I have no trouble remembering. Switching up the stories, Todd Faulkner writes about a life-changing experience, leaving his extended childhood behind when his wife announces that she is pregnant. If you hear a small child in the background of this recording, well, you can guess how the story ends. Read by Mike Dressel, here is Pregnancy Panic and the new voice. I'm pregnant, says Nicole, standing in the hallway with one hand on the wall for support, despite the obvious excitement dancing on her face. Time to kindly bring her back down to earth. <laughs> After all, she said the exact same thing about a month earlier, only to retract it the very next day. <laughs> Given our ages, her late 30s, me early 40s, the odds are long. Besides, we weren't exactly trying to get pregnant, we were just no longer trying not to. <laughs> and with the hours we'd both been working the past month, the attempts to Try to no longer try not to get pregnant. I've <laughs> been few and far between. <laughs> Sweetie, I started. Let's wait and see. She shakes her head. I continue. Remember last month? Give it a few days, then you can take a test. I took a test. Aced it. <laughs> I'm pregnant. <laughs> uncomfortably long mega pause as I watch our moderately sized apartment shrink to approximately the size of a shoebox. <laughs> An even longer pause follows before I cleverly respond, oh. I mean, oh. <laughs> yeah, she says, the first trace of worry of a worry line creeping into her forehead. No, no, it's great, I say, doing my best to sound convincing. It's great. <laughs> Really? She asks. Apparently my improv skills are below par, because as Nicole looks in my direction, she can see nothing but a big ball of blind panic in the general shape of her husband. <laughs> it will be, I offer, as I feel the last vestiges of my arrested childhood beginning to crumble. It will be. I'm gonna be a dad is the thrilling thought that fills my head as I wake up the next morning. Apparently my initial panic has faded, or maybe I'm feeling loopy from lack of sleep. The truth of our impending arrival no longer seems terrifying, but exhilarating. I'm going to be a dad, I think again. And that word suddenly holds a greater significance than I ever imagined. I find myself grinning all the time for no reason, <laughs> brainstorming about names, Shopping for action figures for someone other than myself. 
Now, you should know that I'm a worrier by nature. I'm not talking about the normal, everyday, reasonable concerns that director slash writer slash actor married to a similar hyphenate would have. <laughs> I'm talking about the kind of worrying that is hardwired into every strand of my DNA, quite possibly down to the molecular level. I have the kind of uh, supercharged, sadistic imagination that will take the smallest fear and run with it, extrapolating creative complication after complication until I am being smacked in the head repeatedly by an imaginary tsunami of horrors. <laughs> Is the baby growing fast enough? Too fast. What do you mean you can't find the heartbeat? You have to find the heart. Oh. Oh, there it is. Okay, but what, what if something happens during the amnio? Look, I, I, I know, but what, what if we're in the tiny percentage where something goes, okay, the needle's in. It's fine. Wait, why, why is he swimming towards the needle? <laughs> Nicole just smiles knowingly and looks a little too appreciative when the doctor suggests she go home after the amnio and relax with a nice glass of wine. <laughs> so... With a big hurdle of the amnio out of the way, and every expectation that we're having a bouncing baby boy, that's right, none of that waiting for a surprise crap for us, we finally tell friends and family we're thrilled and excited. Which, since I'm a waiting for the other shoe to drop kind of guy, makes the irrational fears come even faster. What if he doesn't want to come out? <laughs> what if something goes wrong in the delivery? What if Nicole is leaving Harrisburg on a train traveling at 70 miles per hour when her water breaks, and her midwife is on an eastbound train from Penn Station traveling at 64 miles per hour? How fast do I need to run to get to Philadelphia before the delivery and with plenty of time left over to completely freak out? Eventually, after all the time Nicole spends talking me out of the trees, I realize at least the child will have a great mother. What I don't realize is that she is about to use the greatest parenting trick of all on me, her husband. The most powerful tool in the parent's repertoire, distraction. I know, Nicole says, let's shoot a web series. Great idea, I respond, immediately diving into pre-production on an ambitious web series with many characters and locations, monster makeup, and a huge number of special effects that I will somehow have to figure out how to pull off myself. And if I stay on target, we'll have the first episode submitted to festivals a month before the due date. Expecting Dad thoroughly distracted. Mission accomplished. Only, she isn't done yet. I'm gonna be on a reality show called Pregnant in Heels. <laughs> okay, I started. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm suspicious of reality shows because most of them don't show much in the way of reality. <laughs> but it turns out to be awesome, due in no small part to the fact that I don't have to be on camera very much. When I am, it is clear what they're going for. A totally concocted drama about high-strung city women with neuroses amped up to 11 by hormones. <laughs> Nicole plays, her part, uh, plays up her own neuroses to the hilt, sometimes adding some of mine just for fun, <laughs> and absolutely loves every minute of it. So, we sail through most of the pregnancy thoroughly distracted and complication-free. 
The first real hiccup is a brief bout with gestational diabetes. Nicole, whose sweet tooth is second only to my own, is told she has to drastically cut out sugar to protect herself and our son. It'll be fine, I say, the words spilling out of my mouth seemingly of their own accord. I'll cut out sugar, too. <laughs> the voice coming out of my mouth is only vaguely familiar, similar to my own, but calming and reassuring. In other words, completely foreign. Really? She asks. You don't have to do that. I know. But I'm going to. <laughs> At this point, I wonder where this new voice of mine is coming from. Where are the voices freaking out about what could go wrong, or what could have already gone wrong, or this new development? Gone. It wasn't a question in my head. My job was to be calm and offer moral support through shared sacrifice of sugar. <laughs> and then something went wrong. About five weeks out from the due date, Nicole calls from a checkup at the hospital. I don't know when they're going to let me leave. In the past week, Nicole's weight, gain, uh, weight had skyrocketed from water retention, like 30 pounds of it. This kind of late water weight gain is one of the signs of a potentially dangerous condition called preeclampsia. But they're not sure, and they're waiting for her blood pressure to go down. Thing is, it's not going down. The new voice from before is still in my head. This is it, it says, and I calmly nod in response. The voice quickly reminds me of some of the facts I've gleaned from the past several months, and suddenly my own panicked voices are telling me she's either going to be on bed rest, or they're going to uh, induce labor and bring the boy in early. But the new voice quiets these worrisome thoughts, and I find myself saying only, I'll be right there. I arrive at the same time as the latest test results. It is indeed preeclampsia. I start to prep Nicole for the idea of bed rest, but the doctor is ready to induce. They're a little concerned that the boy will be arriving early, but they're more concerned about what would happen if the boy doesn't arrive soon. Long story short, our Leo is going to be a cancer. <laughs> oh no, says Nicole. It's fine, I respond to the new voice. He's going to be just fine. No, I know, but what about the shoot? <laughs> and all at once, I remember, in just two days, Pregnant in Heels is planning on shooting the big finale of my wife's storyline, where she will appear naked on the back of a horse. <laughs> a pregnant Lady Godiva. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know why either. It's reality TV. <laughs> I look at Nicole with a sympathetic smile and shake my head, no. <laughs> Nicole aims her laser focus to the doctor. So uh, let's say we wait until Saturday and induce then. What's the worst that could happen? The doctor thinks for a moment and says, a blood vessel could explode in your brain. A moment passes. I like your brain, says the new voice as it once again escapes through my mouth. Let's do this. Okay, she sniffles. It's funny, she says with a sad chuckle. I was worried that the episode had no drama. <laughs> I guess I'd better call them and cancel Friday. A few hours later. Oh no! Nicole, again. W what's wrong, sweetie? The deadline. 
The what? The web series. The deadline is today. Now, how she remembered in uh, this, in the wake of all the excitement, not to mention her disappointment on having to cancel her big shoot for the reality show, I have no idea. But she is correct. Well, I guess we're missing it, I say. No, she says with a firmness she rarely displays. I'm not missing the reality show and that. After confirming that, in fact, I am 99.8% done with the submission, and that all I need to do is burn some DVDs and deliver them to a nearby festival office, Nicole sends me off to complete this task, since it's apparently going to be hours before anything happens. So I go. Hours later, I return. And something has happened. Not that. Shortly after I left, pregnant in heels smuggled in their host and the camera and shot footage of Nicole for her episode, which is still very much on, by the way. I shake my head, amused, and say, reality in reality television. Who knew? Sorry I missed it. Nicole says, you've worked so hard on that web series, it I would have felt terrible if you missed the deadline. And besides, she smirked, figured if you weren't here, it wouldn't make for better television. <laughs> A long night passes, during which the new voice for the most part keeps my panicked voices under control. Finally, the contractions have begun and things are starting to move. We're still in the same hospital room, trying to keep as much of the natural childbirth experience as we can. The main players are an assortment of nurses, the occasional intern, Nicole's midwife, and me. After what must seem like several eternities to Nicole, I finally exclaim, We can see the head! We can totally see the head! This is very exciting for us. But it turns out you can see part of the head for quite some time before we get to see all of it. <laughs> but I'm still smiling and encouraging and advocating push, push, push. And she's tired. So tired. After my wife finally decided to opt for the epidural, the pain relief she felt from it lasted all of five minutes but she's hanging in there like a champ. Eventually, something shifts, and we can really see the head. And by that, I mean almost all of the head. Oh God, I start. What, says an exhausted Nicole. Just push, you're doing fantastic, I say, my grin spreading beyond each ear. Just push, push, my eyes widening as our midwife calls for the intern, and pow, my son arrives in a burst of Stuff. <laughs> Launching into the room without a cape, but airborne, nonetheless. <laughs> Don't worry, they caught him. No. Suddenly, they're holding him. He's crying, and, and someone's jamming a surgical instrument into my hand, asking if I want to be the one to cut the cord. I hadn't really thought about it, but I, someone's got to do it, so sure. And suddenly we're off. We're all off to the nearby bassinet, hovering around this five-pound, four-ounce miracle. Now, on a side note, I, I, I did apologize to my wife later for completely abandoning her at this moment, but after all, cutting the cord makes me a member of the medical team, right? <laughs> <laughs> Have a patient to check on. <laughs> and I find myself standing at that bassinet, mesmerized, completely awestruck. 
I'm still worried. I, I, I don't yet know that his lungs are working just fine and that he is 110% perfect. But the worries fade into the background as the new voice, which has finally become my own, says, Hi, Griffin. Do you know this is the best day of my life? And at that moment, he smiled. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.